You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Praise be Jesus Christ. This is the last in a series of an introduction to Catholic moral theology. It's only been able to be an introduction. We've had to cover things rather cursorily and haven't been able to go into them in great depth, but we hope that it's whetted your appetite so that you might come back for other programming in greater depth. But we have been discussing the principles of human action, for example. We've analyzed human acts. We've looked at what a moral object is, the role of intention, the importance of circumstances. We've looked at those conditions which might increase or diminish culpability for certain actions. And we've looked at morality in the context of our life in Christ. We have been looking at what we normally call fundamental moral theology. We look at the principles and the analyses of human actions. And in this last segment, I'd like to apply some of those to what we call special morals, that area of the study of moral theology that deals with specific problems, specific moral actions, and the way in which they are analyzed. And we're going to touch on these just very briefly. We're going to look first at social justice, then at sex and marriage, then at medical ethics, and then at the necessity of the use of coercion within the social framework. But again, these will merely be to give you some idea of the way in which these principles are applied in these various areas of human life. And we would hope here also to incite your appetite to bring you back to study these things in greater depth. Now we have looked at the moral life in terms of it being teleological, as being ordered toward ends. And the first area that I'd like to look at briefly is that of social justice. Now we know that justice is defined as rendering to each his due. That's a very classical definition of justice. It's hardly exclusive to the Catholic Church. But we see right away that it directs us toward other people, that it concerns the other and our relationship to the other. Our Holy Father, when he started his pontificate, issued his first encyclical under the title of Redemptor Ominis, Christ the Redeemer of Man. And our Holy Father said that in his pontificate, he wanted to hold up man as a great value. He wanted to build his pontificate around the dignity of man. Our Holy Father had lived in a frightfully immoral, disordered social setting. He had lived in Poland under the regime of the Nazis, and he later had to live in Poland under the regime of the communists. And both of these ideologies did not respect the inherent dignity and worth of the human person. So our Father has been deeply concerned about social justice issues because he has seen such violence that has been done to the human person in our own day. And individuals have the right to have themselves treated with regard to the worth and dignity which is inherently theirs by virtue of their having been created in the image and likeness of God. All of us are able to say certain things are my due in justice because I have been created by God, that I have been destined for a life of morality, and I have been destined for life with Him. 
This is why we render to each his due, because we can all make a rightful claim to what is ours. But as we render to one another what is our due, we do so for a purpose. We see that social life is ultimately ordered toward the common good. We had said our approach to morality is basically a teleological one. And the end of social justice, the purpose and goal of social justice, is the common good. This is absolutely essential to Catholic social doctrine. The concept of the common good says that a juridical framework must be provided and an economic and social order has to be provided so that individuals will have sufficient opportunity to act in accord with their own nature, which is as free, rational human beings, so that they can seek and pursue their own fulfillment and their own happiness. So the common good describes that condition in which human beings are living together in peace and harmony so that they might seek their own flourishing and as they flourish can seek the common good of everyone else as well. Now what's absolutely essential for our attaining the common good is a recognition of the fact that there is an objective moral order. One of the great difficulties with modern societies working toward a common good is that people no longer believe that a human being has a nature which has been granted him by God and which has built into it certain dispositions, teleologies, which must be respected. There are people today that think we can just construct society at whim, that it's not necessary to follow any kind of objective moral order. And that's the great evil that was brought into the world by communism and by fascism. To have truly the common good, there must be the recognition, first of all, that we are creatures of God, which means a recognition that there is a God. According to Catholic social doctrine, there can be no humane, just social order unless there is an acknowledgement of a transcendent source of being, God himself, and a transcendent source of morality and of the good. So for the common good to be attained, there must be an acknowledgement of God who rewards the good, who punishes the evil. Now, any society needs laws to enable it to flourish and to direct the activities of the citizens. But laws themselves are not simply arbitrary constructs of those who happen to be in control. Rather, laws, in order to be truly effective, must reflect the natural moral law. A law has its binding power because it reflects the moral order. Any law which does not conform to the natural law, that is, the moral law, any law which would violate the natural law is, in the final analysis, no law, and we are not bound to follow that law. So the members of a society have a grave obligation to lead, as far as they can, virtuous lives so that they can recognize what is the good and so that they together can work for it. Now, whether the laws regard taxes or schools or military service, they must reflect this moral order. And as they do, then they will bring about the flourishing of society, which is truly possible only under God. Now, there are three basic species of justice which work within any society, commutative justice, distributive justice, and legal justice. Commutative justice 
is what we call contractual justice or quid pro quo justice. This is an arrangement entered into among equals so that one person says, I will deliver these services to you if you provide me with this much compensation. Then if those services are provided, that kind of compensation must be given back. This is a kind of justice that's absolutely essential for any flourishing of society. And people enter into this contract and respect it because they recognize the dignity of one another. This is why it's so essential that human dignity stand at the very center of any just social order. And here we talk about an exact equality between the individuals that enter into contracts. But there's another kind of justice as well, which is known as distributive justice. And this is where the members of society share one another's burdens and benefits. This is the kind of justice which is proportional, that we share burdens which are proportionate to our ability to bear them, and we also provide benefits to those who need them. There's a sharing among members of society, again, because they recognize one another's dignity and worth. And one segment of society will recognize the contributions made by others. For example, it's quite common that married couples will receive certain tax breaks or exemptions for the number of children that they have. The reason society does this is because they recognize that this married couple is assuming additional burdens in bearing and rearing children for the common good. And so to help them bear those burdens for the sake of the larger community, fewer taxes are required of them. And it's a way in which society says, we appreciate what you're doing for us. We want to help you because it's ultimately going to serve us as well. So we can see within our own United States how some of these notions of Catholic distributive justice are played out within our actual tax structure even. We can also talk about legal justice, and this is the kind of obedience that the individual citizen owes to the state and owes to the society for the goods that are provided to them by the larger body, so that within society we agree to obey the laws and we happily obey the laws so that all of society can flourish. If we think that there's a given law which is not just and we feel that we can't obey it, then we don't obey the law, but we have to be ready to accept the responsibilities of not following that law. Now, even when it comes to a matter as central to social justice as that of the ownership of property, we have to see that property itself has no inherent worth or dignity. Again, our Holy Father has written a number of social encyclicals, Laborum Exorcens, Centesimus Annus, that deal with social justice questions in the matter of the use of private property. The Church has always taught that we have a right to private property, but not in such a way that it would violate the dignity of another person. Always we have to see that the good of the human person stands at the center of Catholic social doctrine and that we have to recognize the worth of all individuals. So that, for example, when an employer is providing a wage for his workers, the worker can't be viewed simply as a commodity subject to the laws of supply and demand. He can't be a commodity the way wheat is or coal or iron ore. He has dignity and his employer is to provide him with a salary, with a compensation that will help him lead a decent and humane life by the same token, even though we say that we have a right to private property, and in fact we insist that under the natural law we do, because otherwise 
we can't provide for our future, we can't provide for our loved ones, we don't have an absolute right to private property. We individually have that right, but we also have to see that we have the right so that we can serve others. There is always that communal dimension, even to our own rights. So in society, we see that the rights we have also are there to serve others, not just ourselves. We have this very narrow understanding of rights these days, which means I want what I want and I'm going to claim the means to get it. Classically understood, a right is simply a moral claim to the means necessary to attain those things which are necessary for me to fulfill an obligation, a natural obligation that I have. So rights and obligations are correlative terms. Well, those are just some of the themes that would be covered in a course on social justice and gives you some idea of the elements that would be taken from our fundamental moral course regarding principles of human morality and the analyses of moral acts and how these might be applied to a course such as that on social justice and living out the moral life within the body of the community. As we do this brief overview of what might be called special morals, we want to look at the way in which the Catholic approach to the moral life is not one of legalism and of restraint imposed by arbitrary laws placed upon us by someone else. The Holy Father in his encyclical on moral theology, Veritatis Splendor, talks about the natural law as being an interior law that we have that guides us from within. In this segment, I'd like to look very briefly at the area of sex and marriage. All of us are sexual beings. None of us can avoid the radical implications of being either male or female because this is the way in which God has created us. But in this area, of all areas of Catholic moral teaching, I think people have the greatest difficulty thinking that the church's teaching in this area is the most arbitrary of all of them. Most people can have some appreciation for the church's teaching on social justice, that we ought to treat workers with inherent dignity and acknowledge their inherent dignity and worth. But the church's teaching in the area of sexual morality seems to be something arbitrarily imposed. But this isn't true. The church, again, is looking to the human person and his or her dignity as the source and the guide for the church's reflection on how we ought to live our lives as sexual beings. The Second Vatican Council, in its Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Space, speaks of marriage in the following way, the intimate partnership of life and the love which constitutes the married state has been established by the Creator and endowed by Him with its own proper laws. It's in section 48 of Gaudium et Space. In other words, the laws that guide a married life are inherent to it, have been granted to it by the Creator Himself, and it has its own proper laws so that people should be able to look within and understand what ought to be guiding their moral life. In section 51 of Gaudium et Space, we read, when it is a question of harmonizing married love with the responsible transmission of life, it is not enough to take only the good intention and the evaluation of motives into account. The objective criteria must be used criteria drawn from the nature of the human person and human action. 
criteria which respect the total meaning of mutual self-giving and human procreation in the context of true love. All of the Church's teachings in the area of sexual morality are based on a love and a respect for the human person as God has created him, male and female. Anybody can see and acknowledge that the human race is divided into male and female. But we have to ask why. Well, we know that from the point of view of Revelation that we have been created in God's image and likeness and that this constitutes our dignity and our worth. And Scripture tells us that when God said, let us create man in our own image, that he created him male and female. That is part of the reflection of God's image in this world can be seen in us as male and female. But we know that God is not just the communion of two persons, but a community of three. And so the nature of God is reflected in our lives when man and woman, husband and wife come together and in their love for one another give birth to a third person, to a child. Our Holy Father all the time speaks of the communion of husband and wife blossoming forth into the community of husband and wife and child. Now, this insight can also be gained simply from looking at the natural order. Even people who don't believe in the Trinity and don't believe that we have been created in God's image and likeness can still see that the human race is constituted by having males and females and that they are absolutely necessary for the propagation of the species and that they must come together and commit themselves to one another for life for the sake of the children that they will be engendering and then as they educate those children they will be making their contribution to the larger social order. So we talked first about social justice in this section, but we can see that questions of sex and marriage are in no way unrelated. In fact, they are very much tied up with a sound understanding of social justice because the family, after all, constitutes the basic unit of society. Church teaches that not individuals do, but the family constitutes the basic unit of society. So if we see that our sexuality of its nature, even on the natural order, is ordered toward men and women coming together in union, engendering children, establishing families, building societies, perpetuating the species, building for the future. We have to see that through the use of natural reason alone, that there are certain kinds of acts which ought to be excluded, ought to be precluded. There's nothing arbitrary here about the church's teaching on sexual morality. We know that when men and women come together and copulate, children are usually the result. And this is one of the reasons why the church has always insisted that copulation, intercourse, must be restricted to marriage because children result from it. Children are a great good. If we are going to care for these children, if we are going to nourish them and nurture them, we have to provide a safe context in which they can grow, in which they can be cared for. So we can see, even on the natural order, that if we are going to engage in that act, which of its nature is apt for the generation of children, is ordered toward the generation of children, then we must first, a man and woman, commit one another to a common task of establishing a family and of raising children for their own good, for the good of the parents, and for the good of society. So consequently, any use of our sexuality outside the context of marriage 
comes to be a violation of our very nature. We see that it's beneath our dignity as human beings to be having sexual relations outside marriage because that means that we are acting against our best insight as to what sexuality is all about. We begin acting beneath our dignity as human beings. So the church has always insisted that fornication is one of those acts which may never be done. It is always an immoral act. We can see that adultery is precluded. Why? Because it does violence to the good of my spouse. An act of adultery is a profound act of injustice against one's spouse. It's an act of injustice against the one with whom we have committed adultery. It's an act of injustice against the children. That it can bring disorder into that basic social unit which is to be there for the good of the children, for the good of the spouses, and for the good of society at large. So again, we can see that adultery itself is unreasonable. Contraception, as we were saying earlier, always involves some action other than the marital act And this action, whether it's using a condom or a diaphragm or foam, but this other action, other than the conjugal act, the marital act, is an act which is ordered against the realization of the good, that is, the good of a child, which is inherent within marital intercourse. So again, it denies, if you will, the very meaning of the marital act by acting against it, whereas natural family planning, as we were saying, merely avoids positing any kind of act against the good of the child which is inherent within it. We see also in this analysis that homosexual acts would be beneath the dignity of the human person. Because whether we are homosexuals or not, whether we are men or women, we see that we in our sexuality are ordered toward members of the opposite sex for the purpose of engendering children and establishing families. Homosexuals might want to have a family, but They come together, they can't engender children. It requires gametes from a man, a reproductive cell, and a reproductive cell from the woman, a gamete from the woman. These have to be brought together in order for a child to be engendered. And as a child is engendered from the expression of love between a husband and a wife, the child comes into the world and binds them even more closely together as husband and wife, as the deepest and best of friends. We find that homosexual relationships tend to be highly fragmented, that they're very unstable. And one of the reasons for this is because it doesn't bind them together and allow their love to blossom forth into new life. So we see there, when the church says that homosexual acts are wrong, sodomy is wrong, this isn't something that's arbitrarily imposed on people as though we don't want them to have happiness, we don't want them to have fun. No, the church says you do violence to your very nature. The Holy Father says our bodies have a nuptial meaning Our bodies are ordered toward members of the opposite sex and by that toward the generation of new children. Whether we marry or not, there's a marital meaning within our bodies themselves and to violate that is to do violence to ourselves and to act beneath our dignity. And we see this also in certain attempts to overcome infertility. The church is not opposed to technological interventions to help people overcome infertility. But the church is opposed to anything which would do violence to the dignity of the human person. And there are some types of technological intervention which are used to overcome infertility that do violence to the good of the human person 
as it comes into being. Children are to result from the act of love between a man and a woman. They are not products. They can't be manufactured. And with some types of interventions to overcome infertility, you have the gametes being gathered from the man and from the woman, and you have new life being engendered by the manipulations of technicians in the laboratory rather than an expression of love between a man and a wife, a husband and a wife. So again, the teachings of the church in the area of sexual morality, properly understood, shouldn't be seen as the imposition of laws. This is not a legalistic approach to the moral life, but rather we look to St. Thomas's insistence that God is offended by us only when we act against our own good. And we can see that every sexual act that the church condemns or forbids in some way would do violence to the good of the human person. You know, if we look very briefly in the area of medical ethics as well, we will see that the church's teaching is consistent, it's humane, it's natural, and it isn't anything which people should have difficulty accepting. There's nothing arbitrary about it. Now, medical ethics is an area of tremendous controversy today. And I must say that there are developments within the area of medical ethics the church must reflect on very carefully because some of these developments are very, very complex. The church doesn't rush to judgment on the morality or immorality of certain procedures. Usually the church maintains a certain studied silence for a while while she studies some of these new developments in the area of medical technology or medical ethics before she passes judgment. But of course, once she has passed judgment, once the magisterium has spoken on these questions, then for Catholics they should be settled. But they shouldn't be at odds with the insights that can be gained from the use of natural reason itself. Medicine has always been guided by its own sort of moral principle expressed in the Latin primum non nocere. First of all, do no harm. If there's to be a guiding principle for medicine, as I say, this is derived from their own discipline, not from Catholic moral theology, it is, first of all, do no harm. What is the end of the art of medicine anyway? It's to preserve people's health, and it's to heal them when they have become broken, when they have become sick. The end, the goal, speaking teleologically again, of medicine is health. And everything that is done in the realm of medicine, if it's to make sense, if it's to be well-ordered, should be directed toward the goal of health. Now, the Catholic feels perfectly comfortable with accepting this as the end of medical science. And the principle of primum non nocere, first of all, do no harm, as a kind of directive for the decisions that have to be made in the area of medical ethics. Once again, here, we see the centrality of the human person created in the image and likeness of God, therefore of having a dignity surpassing anything else within the natural order. And medicine has always respected this dignity of the human person and has always wanted to avoid doing anything which would violate that dignity. That was at the core of the Hippocratic Oath which doctors used to have to say before they entered into medical practice. But we know that it's usually not required of physicians anymore because one of the things the Hippocratic Oath stated was that the physician would never provide a woman with an abortion. 
because this was to do violence to a human person. Now this came from a pagan source, the Hippocratic Oath, but Catholic doctors had always been able to, if you will, recite this oath from a pagan source because it was compatible with Catholic teaching, because it also respected the dignity and the good of the human person. Very strangely today, and very sadly, there are certain procedures which are called medical, which do great violence to the good of the human person, and therefore, in a sense, aren't truly medical procedures at all, because they're not directed toward health, they're not directed toward healing. And of course, the one which comes immediately to mind is abortion. How can we call this a medical procedure when a physician is directly assaulting the life of an innocent human being, when a child is being ripped from its mother's womb? This isn't healing. And so consequently, this isn't true medicine. It violates their own principle of primum non nocere, first of all, do no harm. Regrettably, in our society, we also see the growing cry for physician-assisted suicide. Physician-assisted suicide also would not be an act of healing. It would not be a true medical act. In fact, anyone could help another person commit suicide. Why does it have to be physician-assisted suicide? The only reason is because a physician has certain skills that will help him know the effects of certain drugs and how quickly they will work on the body and how much has to be ingested in order for them to have their deadly effects. But this couldn't be seen as a medical procedure at all in any way because it is really helping to bring about death, not healing and not curing of illness. So it is the dignity of the human person that stands at the center of medical practice and also all of the advances in medical technology ought to be ordered toward the healing and the restoration of human health. And the patient, as the citizen stands at the center of social justice and society exists for the sake of the individual citizen, even so in medicine, medicine exists for the sake of the patient. The doctor is really there as a technician, if you will, as a practitioner of an art which serves the good of the patient who is ill, which means that the autonomy the dignity, the rationality, and the freedom of the patient must be respected in all medical procedures. And that's why medicine has always insisted that if a physician wants to do something to a person, he has to have that person's informed consent. The person needs to be given all of the facts about the procedure, about the technique, about the operation, whatever it is, so that the patient can make his or her own decision and assume his or her own responsibility for what is about to occur. And then they give the physician the permission to go ahead or not to go ahead. And this is why we also insist on proxy consent, for example, for children who are not able to make choices on their own behalf. Traditionally, we go to the parents of the child who is ill and the child can't make his own decision. And so the parents are asked to make the decision on behalf of the child but only for those procedures which will lead to the health and the flourishing and the healing of that child. This is also the case when people become, at the end of their lives, incompetent. Maybe they slip into some kind of coma in which they are unable to exercise their human qualities of reason and freedom. 
And so the physician goes to those who are closest to the person who is ill, to a spouse, to the children of this person, and say, you knew this person best. You were closest to this person. What kind of decisions do you think this person would be making in this situation? Help us. And so they provide proxy consent on behalf of the person who is now incompetent with regard to the procedures and the medical practices that might be used. Now, unfortunately, we're losing sight of the importance of the dignity of the human person and why these procedures were always required in the past. They were always required for the good of the human person. There's now a practice in Holland in which parents are presuming to make decisions on behalf of newborns who are born with some kind of medical problem. The newborn might be defective in some way physically. The defect might be able to be overcome relatively easily. And so physicians are going to the parents and say, should we do this simple procedure which would correct this defect in your child? And the parents are now refusing to give consent and indeed allowing the child to die. Now, the consent was always supposed to be there to help bring about healing okay, and to bring about human flourishing, never to help people die. We also find now with people in end-of-life situations, the question is, does medical science have to use all of its measures to keep a dying person alive? Again, the Catholic Church, recognizing the dignity of the human person and recognizing that all of us die and recognizing that our ultimate destiny is in the life to come, has always said, very reasonably, no, medical science does not have to do everything that's necessary to keep a person alive. So the church has said, Pope Pius XII said, if someone is dying, you do not have to use heroic measures to extend this person's dying process. You may allow the person to die. And there is nothing wrong with that from the viewpoint of Catholic morality because it recognizes the dignity of the dying person. Now, however, that's being taken further and people are saying that this person is dying without dignity. This person needs help in dying. And so now there is the cry again for this physician-assisted suicide to actually help terminate the patient's life. If we want to apply Catholic moral principles to end-of-life issues, the one to keep in mind is that we never do anything which would directly assault the life of this person dying. We had made a distinction earlier between a will which directly intends something and another will which simply permits it to happen. And we were saying that when it comes to a matter of willing an act, we can only will a good act even if we say it might have an evil side effect. So for example, a patient is suffering greatly and we want to provide the patient some relief from his pain and so the physician administers some morphine. But it's known that over time this palliative will have an adverse effect and may shorten the patient's life. Well, in a case like that, we say that what we are directly willing is the relief of pain for this person. Even though we might foresee that one of the effects of this pain medication might be a shortening of that person's life, but that's not what we're willing. That's not what we're intending. We only permit that to happen. We tolerate it. We see that it can happen. But now these distinctions are no longer being used and you have people saying, well, if we could see that this is one of the side effects of the pain medication, well then why can't we just go ahead and apply this medication that will result in this person's death? Well, the reason we can't is because it results in the person's death. Now there can be very, very complex decisions at the end of life. 
But again, if we're trying to analyze the act which we are contemplating to see whether or not it would be moral, we have to see what effects they would have and if the direct effect of what we are doing would be the termination of that person's life, then we can't perform the act because it would do violence to the dignity of the human person. Again, in this area, we see the centrality of the church's concern for the dignity of the human person and the way in which the church manifests her respect for the human person. There is nothing worse than to violate the great good that resides in every person who has been created in the image and likeness of God. We have been trying to look at some of the ways in which the principles that we learned in fundamental Catholic morality can be applied in the area that we call special morals. And I'm just touching on these ever so lightly just to give an idea of the direction in which one would go with the principles that we've learned. And also to try to point out some areas of contemporary Catholic teaching that people think are contradictory or inconsistent or arbitrary. So we looked very briefly at social justice here today, at the sex and marriage, at medical ethics. Now I'd like to just ever so briefly in this segment look at how Catholic moral principles can be applied to the question of the use of coercive force in society because I find that this is also an area in which there is a lot of confusion. People think that because of the teachings of Jesus that we are to turn the other cheek when we've been struck by an enemy or Jesus is teaching that we are to love our enemies, that there's no role whatsoever for the use of coercion in public life. However, this would not be consistent with Catholic teaching and it's not inconsistent with what Jesus teaches us about loving our enemies. What Jesus is telling us is that we should never harbor any kind of hatred toward our enemies, even when we may have to defend ourselves against some assault from our enemy. That when we are struck, we might act for justice, that is, that justice be done, and indeed even object to being struck, as our Lord did when he was struck before the high priest, before his trial and execution. But in doing so, we don't harbor resentment or hatred toward the other person. That the only concern that we have is that justice be done and not that we hope to see any kind of harm come to the other. Now, because we are fallen and sinful, there is the need of using some degree of coercion in our social life together to restrain evildoers and to protect the innocent and even also to punish those who have been guilty of a crime. The Catechism of the Catholic Church addresses the question of punishment and says that it is quite appropriate. We read in section 2266, the primary effect of punishment is to redress the disorder caused by an offense. When his punishment is voluntarily accepted by the offender, it takes on the value of expiation. Moreover, punishment has the effect of preserving public order and the safety of persons. Finally, punishment has a medicinal value as far as possible it should contribute to the correction of the offender. Now, we've been saying all along that it is the value of the human person which guides us in Catholic moral thought. It is the dignity of the human person which must be respected in all of the choices which we make. And even when it comes to something like punishment or the use of coercion in a society, the dignity of the human person has to be respected. We use coercion, after all, 
to protect the innocent. It's because the innocent have dignity that we restrain evildoers from harming them. And it's because the evildoer has dignity that we punish him for what he's done. It's a way of saying to him, we recognize your free will, which constitutes your dignity as a human being. You have chosen to do this act, which has hurt the social order and inflicted pain and suffering on innocent people. And this punishment is an expression of an acknowledgement of your freedom, okay, that you freely chose to do this act and you must now bear the consequences of having done that act. Now, we see that it is sometimes very difficult to inflict punishment on somebody because it looks as though we're hurting them. But if it's a just punishment properly applied, it doesn't hurt the person. Rather, as the Catechism tells us, it can be medicinal. It can help that person correct and reform his life. We really have to use the same kind of attitude that parents do when they punish a child. The child doesn't believe it when the parent says, son, this spanking is going to hurt me more than it will you. There's a real truth to what the parent is saying. The parent loves the child, and it's only because the parent loves the child that the parent is going to inflict the pain of the punishment. He's doing it because he loves the child. And it really does hurt the parent to have to do that. And in a just social order, this would also be true of those in authority. They don't want to have to inflict a penalty on someone who has violated the law and violated the just social order, but sometimes this has to be done for the good of society, for the sake of society, and also for the benefit of the person himself. So when we're talking about the state imposing punishment on someone, and this punishment is applied justly within a juridical order, which is just, we can't talk about this as violence. You sometimes read theologians today using that term rather loosely and talking about the violence of the state when it is imposing a penalty. It's not violence, it's coercion, and it's punishment, due punishment. And the Catechism even goes so far to say that the state at times can even impose the harshest of all penalties. In cases of extreme gravity, the Catechism says, even the death penalty itself. But the state can impose this only for the sake of the common good, even, in a sense, for the sake of the person who is being punished himself, that the person has brought this penalty upon himself by the kind of acts that he has committed. We read in Paul's letter to the Romans that we are to respect civil authority because they are God's agent for the punishment of wicked doers and for the reward of the good. St. Paul quotes the Old Testament to the effect, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And then Paul just goes on in that letter and says, but the agent of God's vengeance, if you will, are the rulers, that the ruler wields the sword to punish evildoers and to protect the good. Now, this is possible only within a just social order when we have just laws and we have generally virtuous people living out the social life. One of the bishops, as you all know, the bishops have called for the abolition of capital punishment in the United States today. The bishops aren't denying the fact that the state has this right. I mean, we see scripture itself telling us that civil authority has that right. But the bishops are saying that in our own day, there is such disordered thinking about what constitutes justice that we can't have confidence that the state is going to be able to apply this penalty in any kind of just way.
If we live in a society today which allows the direct taking of innocent human life in terms of the unborn, if there can be such a crass violation of the norm of justice day in and day out, and this is sanctioned by the state, how can we have any certitude that the state will be able to recognize the norms of justice when it might be called upon to impose capital punishment on an evildoer? So, as I say, the bishops today acknowledge that the state has the right to impose capital punishment, but says it ought not to exercise that right, should refrain from exercising that right out of concern that justice be done on all levels. So if punishment is used and if coercive force is used in society, again, it is only out of regard for the dignity of the human person. And even if we look at the question of a just war, we see here that the church would allow a war to take place and would allow Catholics to participate in a war only if it was being waged to protect the innocent. The church recognizes that war is a terrible thing, but Catholics have never been pacifists in the sense of saying that it is always wrong in all times and in all places to bear arms against another. The church says that we may at times bear arms against others if we must do so to protect the innocent. So once again, it's the dignity of the human person that guides the church in its moral reflections on these matters. So the church will say, well, if a conflict is coming, certain conditions have to be met in order for it to be morally licit. The cause has to be just. In other words, it has to be for the protection of the innocent. It has to be an act of self-defense against an unjust aggressor. Only rightful authority can bear it because civil authority bears the authority of God himself and only civil authority can take us into war. All peaceful means of avoiding conflict must first of all be exhausted. Only just means can be used, which means that innocent people, non-combatants, can never be the object of an assault. Fifth condition is that there has to be a good chance of winning because it would be pointless to go ahead and wage a war if there was never any hope of winning it, then there would just be the useless loss of human life. And there must be limited objectives, which says that the war must be waged within the context of the moral order. We don't want to bring absolute destruction on our enemy. We don't want to leave our enemy prostrate because even our enemy has dignity. And so we just have limited objectives, that we dispel the unjust aggressor or that we protect the innocent, that we have no desire of self-aggrandizement or of advancing our own national interests at the expense of other peoples. So even here in the question of the use of coercion, we see the consistency of the church's moral teaching. Again, the church never imposes arbitrary rules on people. Rather, the moral teaching of the Catholic Church arises from its love for every single individual who has been created in the image and the likeness of God. And all of the principles that have been formulated by the church over the centuries, all the careful reflections upon the very areas of special morality that we've gone over today. As I just touched on them every so briefly, but just to give you some idea of how the church would respond, all of the reflections on these areas of special morality are engaged in so that the church can work and struggle to promote human dignity, to protect the innocent, to bring men and women to lives of virtue that are consistent with their nature, that are consonant with the dignity that God has bestowed upon them in creating them in His image and likeness, 
and of that special unsurpassed dignity that he has bestowed upon them by the second person of the Trinity becoming one with humanity, by assuming human flesh and elevating our human race to a position where it can share in the divine life itself. This all reflects the goal of Catholic moral teaching. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.